Welcome to the Forager Podcast, where I talk with cottage food entrepreneurs about their strategies for running a food business from home. I'm David Crable, and today I'm talking with Cassie Menchofer. Cassie lives in Salina, Ohio, and sells dried soup, baking, and spice mixes with her business, Cassie's Country Cupboard. Now, I must say, I am excited to have Cassie on the show today because she is the first person I found who has built a successful cottage food business selling dried mixes. She started her cottage food business back in 2011, shortly after the birth of her second child. So not only was she selling something unconventional, but she also did it while raising two very young kids and working a full-time job. And a few years into her business, an ag department inspector came to her market and told her that her products that sold the best were not allowed under Ohio's cottage food law. And undeterred, she worked to change the law to allow them which happened in 2016. Cassie ended up selling under Ohio's cottage food law for eight years, which limited her to only selling directly to customers. So in 2019, she and her husband decided to invest in building an FDA-approved manufacturing facility on their property, which is a step above building a commercial kitchen. Now she sells her mixes to stores and online, ships her products nationwide, and even operates as a co-packer for other small food businesses. She has quite the unique business journey. So with that, let's jump right into this episode and hear all about it. Welcome to the show, Cassie. Nice to have you here. Thanks, David. It's good to be here. So Cassie, take me back to when this whole business journey got started. Sure. I grew up on Betty Crocker potatoes and hamburger helper and, you know, mashed potato flakes. That is what we actually ate a lot of when I was growing up. And I thought that it was the best thing ever. Little did we know just how terrible some of those ingredients were for us. And I didn't know until I started making my own. Probably It was down 2011 and I just had my second child and we live out in the country about 20 minutes from any store. and. It just was obvious that taking two young kids to the grocery store was not something I was keen on doing. And so if I needed pancake mix or if I needed some hamburger helper or any of those things that I was normally making, I realized I did not want to just have to go to the grocery store and I was going to make it myself. And I realized as I made these different convenience mixes that I was making them with a lot of different ingredients that weren't in those same boxed items that I'd been used to purchasing. And the more I did some research and found all these recipes that I could make these convenience items myself, I thought, well, maybe somebody else would be interested in this too. And so I just gave it a shot, looked up some of the cottage food laws for Ohio and found that different mixes like that were available to create under the Ohio cottage food laws and just went with it and looked to see if friends and family would purchase and they would. And we did the farmer's market. And that's really how it all got started. Yeah, so it's back in 2011 that you started. And how old were your kids at that time? Three and newborn. Wow. So you really started this business with no time on your hands. <laughs> yep, you've got it. I work full time. I still do work full time on top of having a family. We also have a homestead where we do, we raise our own vegetables. We raise some different meats too. So you had a full time job. You're running a farm. You've got two young kids. I mean, how did you have time to start this business? Nights and weekends, like most entrepreneurs. And I know that this is not the first time you've been working in the food industry. That's right. I've been in the kitchen since I can remember. My mom thankfully let me just play in the kitchen while she was making food. And she would let me try and make my own creations. Sometimes they turned out, sometimes they didn't. As long as I cleaned up the dishes, she was fine with it. And just as a kid, I was always making meals for friends and family. I was even selling food out of my locker in high school. I would leave my locker unlocked and I was selling food that way, which I'm sure the principal would not be impressed to hear. Food has just always been a piece of who I am which surprises me that I decided to go to school for business. But it all worked out because that piece of business has really helped with the food knowledge as well. I did work at a camp in a commercial kitchen. I worked in R&D for a rice cake factory. So food has just been always there. And what what is your has been your job or is your job now or, or was your job when you started the business? I was actually a legal secretary for a forklift company when I started the business. And now I am a purchasing coordinator for a local farm machinery dealer. 
I guess the most recent ones helped you with the business? For sure, because of all the different things that I'm doing with purchasing has really led me to understand pricing and cost of goods, all of those things that I really didn't have words to put to. I knew they were important. And I've done a lot of bookkeeping with this job as well to use the different bookkeeping softwares, QuickBooks and things like that, inventory software management. So it's, it's been a big, big help with the business in the last few years. So did you launch your business by selling at the farmer's market or were you selling your mixes before that? The farmer's market was the biggest grand opening, I suppose. I did a couple of small festivals ahead of the farmer's market, but the farmer's market was really the the big introduction to the business. So how much did you invest into this business to get it ready for that first farmer's market? Very little. I did not do amazing labels. I didn't have a logo. I had the the business name, of course, but craft bags or Ziploc bags and just Avery labels that you can purchase at Walmart and using my own printer. So just very simple from day one. Yeah. So you started this very simple and um, went to the farmer's market. I mean, did you have expectations? Like how did that first farmer's market day go? Oh, I was so nervous. I'm like, what if nobody wants any of this stuff? And I've wasted all of these months preparing and being so excited and Maybe this is dumb. Maybe this isn't something that anybody else will want. But I was very surprised at how excited everybody was about the product because it was so different from anything that the other farmer's market vendors had. They had vegetables, they had baked goods, but nothing that was shelf stable and something that they could take home and use at their convenience. It it is really unique. I mean, it's on the list of most states' laws. They allow you to sell baking mixes and such, but Honestly, like I don't know cottage food businesses that are running a baking mix company. And I've always thought that was because the cost of baking mixes are so low at the store. There's not really, it's not really lucrative enough to be able to run a cottage food business selling mixes. But when you went to the first farmer's market, did you bring a variety of different mixes? Yeah, just a few pancake mixes were a big thing at the start. I also did some different spice blends. And trying to think, I also make my own granola, which is a baked good, but it still has more shelf stable time than something that you bake like a traditional zucchini bread or a cake or cupcake. That was the majority of the items, maybe a couple of bread mixes as well. You brought the mixes, but why didn't you also test out baked goods as well? Because I am not a risk taker. And I thought, well, what if I have to come home with all sorts of baked goods? That doesn't sound like a great plan either. And I thought, well, if I don't sell it the first week, maybe I can sell it the second week or the third week. Yeah, definitely the shelf life is a big advantage to this type of business. So what ended up selling well at that first farmer's market? The spice blends were the biggest hit. And they're just little packets of half ounce to one ounce different blends like a dill vegetable mix or a fiesta that would be used for a taco dip or a taco seasoning. Those were the big sellers. That's interesting because I feel like that's not what's your big seller today, correct? That's correct. But it was cheap. It was something lower cost than a larger cost item that somebody who doesn't know anything about Cassie's Country Cupboard would want to purchase. They're taking a risk on me because they don't know me. I'm new to the market. It was only 2 or $3 that they had to spend and they could afford that. If they didn't like it, it would be okay. I got it. So maybe it was just, uh, they're just trying you out at first and clearly they did like it. Yes. (laughs) Many of those customers that I had that first day have continued with me still today. Wow. Now, I also noticed that you kind of also, in addition to having the mixes, you're kind of having a unique value proposition of these being healthier mixes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Everybody has a difference of opinion on what is a natural food product or a healthy food product. So I tell people that my items do not contain anything that I wouldn't feed my own family. And that would include MSG, artificial flavors or colors, different preservatives I do not include in my ingredients. So if someone is looking for that sort of health item, then that is what I can provide for them. Yeah, obviously getting mixes at the store is very easy, very inexpensive. I mean, do you feel like having those things out of it Do your mixes actually taste better or is it just healthier? It's hard to say. People get used to the taste of what they get from the grocery store and they think that that is what tastes good because that's what they're used to. 
but a lot of times after you've used something else long enough, your palate changes and you realize that, wow, this is way better because you can use less and it's more flavorful without all of the fillers. And you just, your mind can tell you this does taste better because it's better for you. And it doesn't contain things that I wouldn't want to put in my body after all. So you started at the market, it went better than you expected. So were you just ramping up your business throughout that first year through the market? Yeah, I only sold from May through September and then a couple of extra festivals during the holiday time. And then from December through April, I was really not doing much because I didn't have an outlet being that we live so far out of town. Nobody was going to come to our house to buy things like they do for other cottage food bakers. People aren't going to drive out into Timbuktu to pick up different spice mixes. Yeah. And of course, that's the whole reason why this business even started, right? Because you live so far away from stores. That's correct. So with this business going better than you expected, I mean, did that put a lot of pressure on your family with everything going on and having a a newborn baby and another young child? My husband was very supportive and I have other family members that were happy to help and watch kids whenever I needed help with the market, especially. And the kids, they helped the three-year-old. He could help at the counter and stir things up for me. And when the baby was sleeping, that's when it was convenient or he was really easy to take care of. And he would just hang out in a pack and play whenever mom needed to be busy. As you can baby wear it, just you make it work. Yeah, well, you certainly did. So you were selling at the market that first year. Can you take me kind of through the high level trajectory of where your business has gone since then? Well, have things changed? About eight years into it, I was just pretty down about the whole thing. I'm like, there's so many places I can't sell. Different boutiques were asking me to be able to sell my products and I'd have to turn them down because legally under Ohio cottage food laws, you can only sell in certain locations and those were not included. And I complained about it enough that my husband said, look, either we build something or quit. And so we went ahead and built our own licensed facility that I could then sell anywhere I wanted to in the United States. I could ship out of state. I could sell at any store that had a certain level of food licensing, depending on what kind of store they were. And just things have really grown in the last couple of years after building that licensed facility on our property. Yeah, we're going to get into that facility in a little bit. That's that's kind of an amazing thing. Um, but that first eight years, were you just selling directly only? Yes, I maybe shipped a couple of things within state line. You could ship. It just had to be within Ohio State. I don't even remember what Ohio's law was like in 2011. I mean, was it really easy to get yourself set up under their law? Absolutely. They are a great state to work with as far as cottage food laws go. It's really the limiting where you can sell. And there were some things that I found that I could not sell that I had been selling. I'd been trying to sell soup mixes. An inspector came to a farmer's market one time and saw that I was selling those soup mixes. And she said, that is not able to be sold under the cottage food laws. And she made me take them off the table, which is very frustrating because in my mind, they were non-hazardous, but they weren't specifically called out in the law. So I lobbied for the state to allow us to add that to the list of things that were allowed. And it took a couple of years, but we finally did get that to pass. I had a bunch of friends send letters to the government asking them to support that decision to get things rolling with adding soup mixes back in. And is that your biggest seller now, the soup mixes? And it was at that time, too. That's why I was so frustrated. One of my top sellers were those soup mixes, and the government was telling me I couldn't sell them anymore, which I understand. If it wasn't allowed, I couldn't do it. But it was, you know, what do I do now? Is it really worth continuing if my top sellers aren't able to be sold anymore? You also sell maple syrup. I just thought that was kind of fascinating. Can you explain a little bit about that business? Sure. That's part of our homestead. My father in law started. The family at large does the project in February and March doing our own maple syrup. We see the sap drip from the trees. We boil it down and we've all chipped in. It's probably been about 20 years that we've been doing maple syrup now as a family. And that's why I started selling granola. It was because we had so much maple syrup on hand. It's not so expensive for me to buy on the grocery store shelf when we make it ourselves. I do figure that cost into it, but it doesn't feel like it's costing as much since we do make it ourselves. 
but I do sell it at the farmer's market as well as we sell it throughout the season until we sell out typically by the holidays. So what was happening for the first few years of your business? I mean, were you growing a lot or were you just, you know, kind of stabilized with your farmer's market sales? It was pretty stable, not making enough money to do anything more than just have some extra spending cash. I made the mistake of not separating business from personal funds. So it was really hard to see how much income was really being generated because it was just cash that we would spend as we needed to. And I would spend on the the personal credit card and it was hard to see. And once I made that change, it was easier to see how much could be made if we would make some changes. So looking back, is that something that you would have changed? Would you have started a business bank account right away? Absolutely. And that's something I tell anybody who asks me, what's the biggest piece of advice you can give to a starting entrepreneur? And it's always keep those funds separate so that you can tell if the business adventure is making money or not. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know. This did not used to be the case, but these days it's really not difficult to start a business bank account for free. So there's not much reason not to do it. Right. So I think the biggest problem with the baking mixes, right, is just the perceived value of them. You know, people are used to what they pay at the store. So what were you pricing your mixes at uh, when you started your business and through the first few years? A lot of them were about $5 is where I was hovering around. And it was so hard to raise prices the first time I did. But I knew that I had to. And I thought, what are the customers going to think? And honestly, they didn't blink an eye. And you're selling them for $5, but do you know if you're actually making money? I mean, I know you had everything merged with your personal finances, so maybe you weren't even able to tell. Well, I mean, I had to report tax-wise when there was profit and that looked like there was. It was just hard to track. And throughout the whole season until tax time rolled around, I really had no idea because I wasn't tracking it in real time. It was just, oh, hey, I better sort through all these receipts and figure out what exactly I made this year so I can either report a loss or a profit. And were you like changing your recipes at this time or getting feedback and adjusting them based on customers' feedback? Every once in a while, things would change, but I did a lot of testing with friends and family ahead of time, and things were pretty well received once I put it out into the market. Flavors have come and gone throughout the years, but the main recipes have stayed the same. One of the nice things about mixes is that when you have someone who falls in love with a mix, right, like they have Bisquick or something or Krusty's, and that's like their thing to go to to, to make whatever they're making. So is that what's happened with your business? Are people kind of like diehard fans? They come back over and over again? Absolutely. And they tell all their friends. And it's definitely word of mouth has been my biggest marketing tool. So I know there have not been many baking mix companies that I have seen, at least cottage food businesses. Do you have an idea of why that might be based on your experience? Why would someone buy a five, six, seven dollar baking mix for one bread when they can buy a whole box for several loaves or several servings of pancakes for two or three dollars if you go to the right store? Maybe it's more than that at this point. Why do you think people are willing to pay that for your mixes? It's a trust factor. I've asked that question and that's what they come back with is because I know that you serve this to your family. You show us on social media, the different things that you're making. It's not just a one size fits all. It can fit many different types of families needs and they just, it's trust. It really does come down to that. And they know that what I'm putting in there is exactly what I put on that label because I talk about it all the time. I did notice that you're really active on social media. Is that something that you started way back in the beginning? Yes. And I really don't know if the business really would have flourished without social media. Facebook has been a huge piece of my sales, not because I'm selling on Facebook, but because people see what I'm doing with the different products. And they see it's not simply just a taco seasoning. It can be used for so many different things. It's not just a beer bread mix. I show all sorts of variations to use the different products so that you don't either get bored with it or your family that says, oh, I don't like soup. Well, don't use it as a soup. Make it into a casserole instead. So you're really investing a lot in customer education, right? Not only at the market, teaching them how this is kind of different than other mixes that you could buy at the store, but also teaching them how they can use your mixes in various ways. And so 
what was your Facebook strategy? I mean, what did you do in the beginning to get yourself noticed on Facebook? Man, that was a long time ago and just posted different pictures of the packaging. And it was, here's a gift basket I put together for this raffle. Here's a potato soup mix. Isn't it cute? Or here's my kids eating pancakes that you can buy at the next market. Well, I know you might not remember what happened way back then on social media, but I see what you're doing now. It's kind of a unique strategy. And uh, can you share what you're doing to post on social media today? Sure. I have a theme most of the time, every day of the week. Sundays are typically a slow cooker or slow smoked Sunday. I have a couple of in-laws that like to smoke things. So they use my products for that. Mondays, a lot of times meatless Monday, not because our family is vegetarian, but I do have relationships with a lot of vegetarians and most of my products are vegetarian or vegan. And so I can share that with a lot of people who appreciate that. Tuesdays, a lot of times a tip of some sort, whether it's a recipe or another way to use my product. Wednesdays, typically a funny, wacky Wednesday. Thursdays, thirsty Thursday or thankful Thursday. Friday is all about the farmer's market during farmer's market season. And when it's not farmer's market season, it's all about freezer Friday because as a busy mom, we're always looking for ways to use our freezer to make meals easier. Saturday is typically some sort of a sweet thing. And that's the whole week. And it makes it very simple to come up with different ideas because I have that theme every day. They're like, well, I need something vegetarian today, or I need something that involves alcohol for Thursdays. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant. Although I feel like even still with that method, it would get overwhelming. Do you have a hard time coming up with ideas? No, food is on my mind 24-7. When I'm eating breakfast, I'm thinking about lunch. When I'm eating lunch, I'm thinking about what I'm doing for supper. It's just, it's been part of my life for so long that I have more ideas than I can put down onto paper or onto social media. All right, fair enough. Well, are all of these things you're posting on social media directly related to something that you sell? Not always. Every once in a while, I'll throw in a recipe that has nothing to do with a product that I have just to be value added to my customers. Well, I mean, you've obviously done quite well on social. I know you have thousands of followers on your social account. So has that just grown steadily over time? Or are there things that you've done to help boost that and gain followers? It's really mostly organic. I did a couple of giveaways earlier, but I realized that those people typically are not going to be my customers. They're just in it for the giveaway and then they become just a vanity metric at that point. So typically followers these days are just because they've seen someone share my product, uh, share a post, or they've seen me at the farmer's market and want to make sure they know all the newest recipes or when I'm going to be at the farmer's market. So yep, all organic. So I guess you had social and you had the farmer's market. Was there anything else you were doing to get your name out there? Just a couple of other festivals during the year, especially during the holidays and word of mouth. That's really all it's been. And so that was pretty steady for like eight years? Yes. And then I guess it got to the point where you felt like you needed to transition. Like, What did you feel like, I'm ready to make that switch? Really, it was my husband giving me a kick in the butt that, hey, if you're going to do this, do it big. And he was there to help me. And he was the driving force to get that next step made. Well, what was the status of your home at that time? Like had the business taken over your house? Oh, yes. We have shelves still in different rooms that we were housing some of the product and all the inventory of the raw product. It was getting a little out of hand. And he had mentioned that as well. He's like, where did our house go? It's covered in Cassie's Country Cupboard, really. And can you tell me a little bit about what type of facility this is that you created? From the outside, it really just looks like another farm building. It's 24 by 24, so fairly small, but it's all that we needed. And white siding on the outside and concrete floor in the inside the building and just really stainless steel tables and plumbing to make the inspector happy. And there's no machinery. It's all done by hand. So that was a nice piece of this that it wasn't too terribly expensive to outfit the building. Yeah, I mean, I saw that this was an FDA approved facility, which, you know, most people, if they're building something, they'd build just a regular commercial kitchen. Can you tell me what the difference is there? My products were considered a manufactured good rather than a baked good because there are these dry mixes. And that just threw me into a different category. Whereas if I was just baking bread, 
than I could be simply a commercial kitchen. But because of that desire of doing across state lines and it wasn't a baked product, it just, it put me into a different category that needed special licensing. Interesting. Because I feel like that would be even more complicated to do an FDA approved facility. Was it pretty complex to get this all put together? It was to an extent because it was such a simple process. It didn't require the grease traps and the overhead fire protection and things like that that would be required if there was different processes happening. The biggest problems were septic, actually, because of not being on city septic. We had to go through the Ohio EPA to take care of that piece of it. And that took the longest out of everything to do that licensing piece. And I I saw that you said that building this building was a labor of love and tears. Definitely all of the above, for sure. It was a great experience to have the family chip in and make it happen. But of course, there were setbacks with suppliers. You know, We couldn't get the things that we needed, trying to find things that didn't cost a fortune. There was weather delays. There was like even the roof was the wrong size when it was delivered by the company that we were contracted through. Getting answers from the government on what we were supposed to do with different pieces and frustrated that what they recommended was not necessarily the most cost-effective way. So just different problems, but we worked through them and here we are. So can you remember like how much things cost? I mean, usually it's extremely expensive to build something like this. Sure. We started construction in 2019 before all the craziness in the world happened. And we did a lot of the work ourselves that didn't require licensed professionals. We do a lot of our own dirt work here on the farm. And so we were able to get that done before any builders came. My husband is very handy with all different types of things. So he was right in there with the builders, right in there with the electricians and the plumbers. And we had a lot of family that they are licensed plumbers. They are licensed electricians and engineers. So they all pitched in as best they could. And we approximate it would have cost $50,000 if we hadn't done a lot of the work ourselves. So yeah, that's what we think it would have cost. Yeah, that's not surprising. I mean, (laughs) it is not cheap to build one of these. And it sounds like it's nice that you got a lot of help and you're able to bring the cost down quite a bit. So did it take long? I mean, obviously you had to build the place. Did it take long to actually get it inspected and approved after it was built? The worst part, it was we had it scheduled for March 2020, and then the world fell apart. And the inspector actually fell ill the day before she was supposed to come and inspect. So it took some time to get her there to do that very first inspection. And it was all very, will she even come? Is she allowed to come? So it was pretty stressful in March 2020 because of how things were going with COVID. Yeah, I can imagine. So when did this actually end up getting approved? It did actually. She signed the papers in March 2020. It just wasn't the date in March 2020 that I had hoped that it would be just later in the month. Well, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, I was thrilled. I was afraid it was going to be six months at that point. All right. So you got this facility approved. And what was the feeling like when you knew like you had a place to move out of your home? I was just ecstatic, jumping up and down with excitement. Is it something you wish you had done sooner? Yes, I do, because I would have been able to stop complaining about all the things I couldn't do, and I could have then moved on to the things that I can today. So you started your business in 2011. What point, in retrospect, would you say you were ready to build this building? I would say in five years, I had a handle on the fact that this was an actual business. It was going to lead to something if I wanted it to. So it's really interesting and unique that you did this right at the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, you really couldn't have timed it more perfectly to coincide with the beginning of the pandemic. So how did that affect things as you moved your business forward? Well, of course, the supply chain became completely disrupted at that exact same time. So as I started selling again, things were difficult to come by. You never knew if the product that you had always used before the same vendor, if they were going to have what you needed. So it was finding different vendors. 
And we weren't sure if the farmer's market was going to start back up in May. We did have a little bit of a delay getting that up and going. So it was interesting, to say the least. Yeah, I know it's hard for pretty much everyone. So before the pandemic, how were you sourcing your ingredients? I do most of it online. A lot of them are specialty ingredients I can't find necessarily at our local stores. Anything I can find locally, I do purchase there, but most of it's online and just doing a Google search on large quantity products. It's you know not just a 16 ounce container of anything at this point. Uh, so once you had this facility all set up, then you obviously now can ship interstate, you can sell indirectly. So what was your first step? To change my website from only shipping in Ohio to shipping nationwide, that was an exciting moment when I could make that flip on the website. So did you get quite a bit of sales from out of state? Not to start. It took some time for that. And it still isn't a big piece of the business. Most of my customers are local, whether it's within the county or surrounding counties, most of which I don't deliver to because it's just far enough, especially with gas prices the way they are. It's still cheaper for me to ship things to them rather than make deliveries, plus the time piece as well with me still working full time. But during the holidays, things do pick up for shipping because my local customers will want to ship gifts to their friends and family throughout the states. When did you start to sell in stores? That was pretty quickly after things had settled down with the pandemic and people were allowed to go into these other shops and not just the grocery stores. And they were pretty excited that I was allowed to do that at that point because people had been asking me for a couple of years, you know, can I sell your product? And I'd have to tell them no. So as soon as I could say yes, I was contacting them. Yeah, so that's nice. So you already had people who wanted to get your product in their store and they maybe were already fans of the product themselves. And you know, how well did the sales do once you started putting in your product in stores? It was good. I'd say people had always been asking me, where can I buy this when you're not at the farmer's market? And they were tickled when I could tell them, hey, you can also purchase these at these different locations. And that was great because not everybody can go shopping on Saturday mornings. They like to be able to go to the other shops in town or in the surrounding communities. Do you feel like most of the people buying your products in stores were already your customers or already aware of your product or were a lot of people discovering your product for the first time? A lot of them in our super local community knew about my products already, but the ones in the extended communities maybe are trying them for the first time. And you know, the difference when you put your product on shelves, right, is they have to speak for themselves, whereas at the market, you can speak for the product yourself. So did you have to revamp your packaging, revamp your labeling to get into the stores? Definitely. And I noticed a jump in sales once I did do that. I did some investing in professional photography and professional labels, and it has been a game changer. People take me more seriously instead of the home printed Avery labels that I've been slapping on packages for years. And people are more likely to gift the product too when it has a professional label on it. I hadn't thought about that, you know, having professional photography for your products, because obviously with a mix, you have to use the label to show them what's going to come out of this mix. Right. It's hard to see when it's just a bunch of white flour and some speckles of different things. What is this going to be when it is finished? Right. So what you said you're doing Avery labels and everything before that. Are you using a label service now? For most of the products, I still have a few things that I haven't sold enough of, and I'm still trying to see where it falls on whether it's popular enough to invest in the photography again that it'll take, plus the professional labels to have them created. What service did you use for that? The AccuLabel company in Fort Wayne and also Mercer Color here in Ohio. Did you have to change your packaging at all as well? I have upgraded over the years. I was using the craft tin tie bags to start and I've moved up to the stand up zip top bags, whether they're clear all the way through or metallic on one side and clear on the other. And that's a different thing that I do as well compared to other mix companies that you'll see on the grocery store shelves. You can't see through their packages. And I like to do that this way so that people can see exactly what it is that they're getting. People have questioned, you know, doesn't that 
lower the shelf life and it might but i'd rather that people didn't leave it on their shelf for three years i want them to use it and use it quickly what is the shelf life of your products without all the preservatives in it sure i put about a year on them and it would be good for two or three years probably but in case the customer does not store it properly if they don't put it in a cupboard that's dark and cool and away from their hot spots in their kitchen I want to make sure it's still good for them to use. There's nothing going to go wrong with it, but there might be a loss in flavor. Or if there's baking powder, there might be a loss in the leavening power there. And where do you get your bags from? A variety of places with the way everything is right now. I keep several different vendors. Paper Mart has been a big piece of it. Even Amazon every once in a while, the wholesale supply company. I think that's what they are called is wholesale supply. Just different places that offer the size of bag that I need, which could change at any time, whether they carry that product or not. They might be out of stock. You just never know. And has your pricing gone up since you you know, had to put your product in stores and start selling wholesale? No, because my volume of purchasing has gone up as well. So that decreases my cost the more I can buy in bulk so that then I can keep my products at a similar level. So are what are people paying today to get your products? Depending on where they're shopping from, because people can sell them for whatever they want to. I don't put a limit on what the retail price is at different stores, but depending on what it is they're buying. A lot of times the spice blends are $4 to $7, depending on if it's in a small bag or if it's in a bottle. The baking mixes are 7 to $9, and the soup mixes are 8 to 10 And how do you determine your pricing? Based on the cost of the ingredients, the cost of the packaging. My labor, of course, is figured into that. The overhead of having the building, it's all figured in. The advertising cost which I have very little in that I don't do a lot of paid advertising, but there is some. So, you know, you have this building and I know that you use it for your own business, but you also use it to help other businesses. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I really like to be able to help out other cottage food businesses that want the same thing that I've been able to achieve. They want to get out of the cottage food but they don't have either a commercial kitchen close enough to them to make sense, or they don't have the time that they want to put into it. And I offer that service to them. If they make spice mixes or other baking mixes or soup mixes, something that I'm already doing, I contract out my time to create those for them, package them to their specs, label them, and ship them back to wherever it is that they want to store them so they can distribute to their stores and throughout the nation that they would like to do. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. So you're basically running a small co-packing operation for them. Yes, and I wish that that would have been an option for me. That's why I'm offering it to other people because I feel like there's a definite need for low minimums for people just starting out that don't want to have 20,000 units required of them. And it takes time to get a co-packer to even get you scheduled into their line. I wish that would have been available for me and I might not have made my own building then if that would have been an option. Yeah. I mean, I know that's the hardest thing about the co-packer route is that you got to have order minimums. You got to have a thriving business at that point that you're going to move to a co-packer. So, but on your end, you know, if you have lower minimums, do you feel like it's actually a lucrative business for you to do this? Or is it just, you know, sort of something that you're doing to help other people? It is. I price for the time and it's more expensive to have me do the co-packing than it would be for a co-packer to do it. But I have those low minimums that people can prove the business rather than make that extreme expense happen. And they may not ever be able to sell that product. So per piece, it's more expensive, but in the end, it's not an expensive mistake. Have you had products that didn't work well? Yep. We've phased out different ones and I'm always trying new things. So I have to remind myself that I can't keep making new and holding on to the low sellers at the same time. What is an example of something that didn't sell very well? There was a pumpkin pancake mix that I made that since it's so time specific on when people would be interested in that, and it took a lot more work on their part. It wasn't as simple 
as some of the other things I think was part of it. There was a chocolate muffin mix that I did that just never really took off, which I thought was delicious, but nobody else, I guess maybe that was something that they could buy much cheaper for the value that they perceived with just a muffin mix. So that one never really made the cut. There was a lemon coconut muffin mix again that I thought was amazing, but not enough people liked lemon and coconut mixed together. Is there anything that you would like to sell, but you don't? Not that I can think of offhand. I mean, like, is there anything like you want to have meat in your products, but you can't or don't? No, I don't think so. Because I like to be able to offer that option that everything is vegetarian or vegan and they can add whatever meat products they want. I always give those ideas on what they can do with the products to add meat into it. And it just makes it more able to be used by more people. Have you ever done like custom recipes for an event or for a customer? I've brought back recipes from the vault, things that I no longer made, but people knew that I did in the past. And if they had a large order, then I would be willing to bring those recipes back. That happened this past year. Somebody knew about my hot chocolate mix that I thought was too high priced. They were a gift basket company. And so that price kind of gets hidden into that whole basket. And so I did that for them individually. So when you're selling at an event, I mean, most people who sell at a farmer's market, they will do sampling, right, of their product. But it's a little harder with mixes. I mean, are you making the product and having them sample the final version or do you do sampling? I have done that in the past. The last couple of years, I have not. Last year, it wasn't really an acceptable practice. This year, it would be. But I'm the only person at my farmer's market booth. And that's just too much for me to take on, to control the samples, to be checking out customers, to be talking to people with questions. And I find that, yes, I would sell a few extra things, but the time it takes to make the samples, to bring them and have that extra added stress, it's not seemed to really be worth it. Is there ever been a time when you just sampled the mix by itself? I don't think that that would work with any of my products, you know, just tasting dried herbs or the flour, it just, it wouldn't be able to give anybody a sense. I have done sniff jars for the different spices where people could open the container and smell them. But ever since the pandemic, I just kind of put that aside. So what are the common questions that people ask you when they come up to your booth? More of a, why did you start this business? Or how did you come up with this idea? Those are typically the questions. And then they see the front of the package, which doesn't have ingredients or the directions. So they want to know, well, how do I make this? And I have to instruct them to turn over the package and all of that information is on the back. So you've done events, you've done these shows, and I guess those probably dried up during the pandemic. For the most part, our community is pretty rural and many of those shows still went on. I guess our community did not accept the fact that we had to stay home. So we still got out and did the events as safely as we could. But I think only one or two of the shows were canceled that I was planning to attend that year. Yeah, certainly more common for a rural community. And then I noticed that you did this like national online show. Is that correct? Yes, it was where you could have video conversations with people that would come to your digital booth. It was a pretty neat experience. I'm glad that I did it. The people who put it on did not get as many people involved as they thought we were going to. So it didn't create huge sales, but I did gain new customers on both coasts of the United States. So that was exciting. So how did how did that work? Like, What did you have to do to get into the event? And did they just set it all up for you? I was a friend, I guess, of one of the people online who was putting it on and they knew about my business and thought that I would be a good fit for it. And you had to pay a fee to be part of it. And then you set up your page, which was your booth with the products and pictures of what a booth would look like if people were visiting you in real life. And then they would have the opportunity to video chat with you or just you could type chat as well. So it was, you had to be fairly technologically savvy to make it all work. It wasn't for somebody that didn't have any knowledge of that sort of work on the computer. Yeah. It's a very 
different kind of way of of getting your name out there and uh probably only happened due to the pandemic so is that something that you would ever pursue again in the future no food i think is something that people are so particular on and if they don't if they can't put their hands on it and if they can't really see the packaging if they don't know you personally it's i don't know if i really trust this company that i've never heard of before so amongst all of your sales avenues like you've got local at the farmers market you've got indirect sales in the stores you've got your website sales across the country what brings in the most sales and what brings in the least definitely the most comes from the farmers market it's just after so many years, you just have those people that keep coming back again and again, and they're willing to tell people that are shopping right beside them, hey, you've really got to try this. And so then the next person will try it and um, take some home and come back the next week for more. The stores, the wholesale piece is growing. A lot of those stores are newer and have just started in the last few years. So it's hard to see if they're going to continue to grow with my sales as well. I would think that that aspect of your business would eventually take over the farmer's market. That's the goal, yes. So I see that you have only done wholesale at stores, but you've also done wholesaling on FAIR. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. FAIR is a platform that allows other retail partners to check out what wholesale options are out there for them to purchase. And it's been really neat to get those orders that come in from stores that I've never heard of. They're not local. They're all over the United States and they see a product that they'd like to give a try on their store shelves and they'll place an order and I just have to fill it. And FAIR takes a portion of that sale because they're giving me that platform and that visibility, but it is a really great platform to be on. I've never heard about this platform before. Like, Did you hear about it or did they find you? I'd heard about other food companies that had been on it, so I checked it out. And I did apply once and was denied, but I didn't have great photography of my product. I just had the photography of the finished product. They didn't understand that it wasn't actually beer bread that I was trying to sell. It was the packaged mix. So once I got professional photography of the packaged goods, then they understood and they did accept me onto the platform. So if I understand this correctly, their customers are small businesses, right? For the most part, it does seem like they're more boutique businesses, not your Kroger's, not your Walmart's. They're not on that. They would be more on the Range Me platform. And is this across the country? Are you shipping these out to boutiques in different states? Is that kind of how it works? Yes, I've uh, sent things to Georgia and the Carolinas and California, Oregon. It's been all over. Have you gotten repeat sales from them? A couple, not as many as I'd hoped, but I didn't get on the platform until late October, probably, which is probably too late to get a lot of my products on their shelves for the Christmas and warm eating season, I would call it, you know, where you want to have your soups and you want to have your baked goods. I'm hoping that coming into late summer, since I'm already on the platform, I'll get more visibility than when they're looking for those products to start purchasing to get on their shelves. Is that the busiest time of year for you when you make your sales? Is the end of the year? For the wholesale piece, yes, it is later in the year. So I guess it's not at the farmer's market because the market's only open in the summer. Is that right? Right. Yeah. We go through September. And so I have great sales for different things and even including the soup mixes and baking mixes, but people lean towards the pancakes and spice mixes, that sort of thing during the summer. Whereas then come the fall and holiday season, they're, they're buying all the comfort foods. So your biggest revenue stream is coming from the farmer's market, but that's not open for the whole year. So when the market ends, do people just keep on buying like your diehard customers? Do they buy through the website? Yes. And are you just shipping them or are they picking them up? I mean, they, I guess they're not picking them up, right? Do you do delivery? <laughs> Most of them don't pick up. They, Some of them will if they, for some reason, need to come out this direction. But since I need to go into town at least once a week for running errands, then I will deliver to local customers or I will ship depending on what the best use of my time is. So here's my big question. You've got this facility that you're using. You know, you're using it to package products for the farmer's market, for indirect sales, 
for people who order across the country and you're also using it for the co-packing service and you also still have a full-time job. (laughs) I am the sole provider of insurance for our family. And that is a big piece of this until I can have enough profit to cover both my income as an employee and that insurance piece that most of my insurance is paid by my employer. It's going to be really hard to make that jump, but it could happen someday. And I look forward to when that happens. Is that what the goal is? I mean, what, where do you hope this business goes in the future? Yeah. I mean, it is the goal that I can spend most of my days, especially when the kids are at school. And then that way, when they're home in the evenings, I'm not telling them, sorry, I can't sit down and watch a show with you or play a game. Mom's got to go out in the facility to work instead. I'd love to be able to just have those times to relax at home instead of just eating up all the nights and weekends running the business. As you look back on it, is the trajectory of your business what you ever thought it would be? Did you ever think you'd get to this point? No. When I first started, it was just, it was for a hobby, really. And then maybe some side money. And then it was a little more than just side money. And it was actually part of our income for the family. So yeah, I never thought that it would be to this point with the idea that maybe I could do this full time. So why do you keep running the business? Why are you so passionate about it? I've seen how much people appreciate the products. It's not just because of the taste. It's because they have that trust factor and that they are feeding their family things that they maybe wish they could or had time to make from scratch, but it's as close as you can get without doing that. And they love that piece that they can feed their family good food and still have time to enjoy each other. Well, it sounds great. It's amazing where your business has gone over the last decade plus, and I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes in the future. Now, Cassie, if people want to learn more about you, where can they find you or how can they reach out? My website is always available. It's www.cassiescountrycover.com. And if they're on social media, I'm very active, as you mentioned, on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook is the easiest way to actually communicate with me if you wanted to send me a message that way or by email. It's all all on the website. You can find me just about anywhere. Great. Well, thank you so much, Cassie, for coming on the show and sharing with us today. Thank you, David. That wraps up another episode of the Forger podcast. For more information about this episode, go to forger.com slash podcast slash 64. And if you enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. A review is the best way to support the show and will help others find it as well. And finally, if you're thinking about selling your own homemade food, check out my free mini course where I walk you through the steps you need to take to get a cottage food business off the ground. To get the course, go to cottagefoodcourse.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.